Hello, it's Wednesday, November 7th. Don't miss today's Walter's World special on Iran at 10 p.m. Israel and 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Renowned Iran expert Emanuela Otolenghi will talk about the background of Iran's nuclear ambitions and the possible consequences. Hear also what it's like for an ordinary British citizen born and educated in Britain to return as Israel's ambassador to that country. Today at 10 p.m. Israel and 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Shalom, 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 and welcome to the Noahide Nation Show. We're certainly glad that you guys decided to join us. We have a pretty good Tuesday going here. I got my friend and cohort, Adam Penrod, with me. Adam, how you doing? Doing pretty good, Ray. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm kind of anxious and nervous and uh, nauseous about doing this upcoming show yeah. <laughs> because uh, kind of the, the direction that we decided to take this in has uh, really opened my eyes up to a great many things. And just to let the, the our listeners in, uh, you and I were you know, talking off air that this whole idea of taking current events, things that are in the news today, and taking them and, and demonstrating in a practical fashion how uh, the Noahide laws apply to these various current events brought me, anyway, I'm, I'm on my way home one day, to the realization that, wait a minute, everything that happens that I can, could figure out stemmed from theft. We had done the last uh, uh, show uh, as as part of uh, of theft, and so I'm driving home thinking, okay, you know, what can we do the next show on? I mean, we've got uh, idolatry, we've got adultery, we've got you know, don't eat the limb of a living animal. We've got and everything I kept coming up with kept leading me to, <laughs> wait a minute, everything stems from theft, which then got me to thinking, oh my gosh, is this? another aspect of the reasoning why Hashem decided to wipe out mankind. Because he's, he mentions the word theft and robbery at least twice in in Torah. He also mentions corruption, I think, a couple times as well. But obviously corruption can be theft, and theft can be corruption. So it kind of expanded me, in a, expanded my thought process in, in a way that was just profound as another reason why Hashem decided to it was time for mankind to end because theft was so rampant that everything that it it encompassed everything that went wrong, all the evils out there seemed to be stemming from theft. Now, if somebody out there can think of the Noahide laws and a circumstance which wouldn't apply to theft, please, please (laughs) send it into us because I'm very, very curious if, if it does exist. I mean, and if you do, send it to Noahide at NoahideNations.com. But, Adam, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that theft is, is pretty related to – there's always some sort of connection where you're, you're, you're taking away God's honor, you're taking away the honor of another human being, where you're taking uh, away your, your, your um, commitment to a correct idea for a false one. There's always some sort of you're taking from somewhere maybe you shouldn't be taking from. So there is, you know, analogously this this connection to theft, and there's also this very real connection to theft. And just to emphasize what Ray was saying about theft and how important, devastating it was, 
We have uh, I have a book here um, called Kosher Money by Rabbi Yol Schwartz. And those of you who do know or don't know this 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 person, he is uh, this rabbi happens to be a, a the posek for Bnei Noach. He has a uh, Beit Din in uh, Jerusalem for Bnei Noach, where they send their questions. And he wrote a book about kosher money. Uh, probably his his uh, concern was he was aimed at a Jewish audience, but you know. Jewish the rulings for Jews is pretty similar to the rulings for, for for non-Jews and it's pretty relevant. So this is what he says in his introduction. People often consider the prohibition of sealing to be simple and straightforward, unworthy of an in-depth study. What they do not realize is the numerous Torah prohibitions are cl- included under the heading of stealing, and each one has many and often complex applications. They are also aware of how vital these prohibitions are. The first thing a person is asked when he is brought for his final judgment is, did you do business honestly? This is in, in, in uh, Tractate Shabbat 31a in the Talmud. Okay. For this is the essence of righteousness. A person who conducts himself honestly and whose money matters are in order is a perfect tzaddik. This is Kav HaYashar, chapter 52. The sages say a person is judged in his cup, in his pocket, and in his anger. Aravine 65b. This situation reveals a person's true spiritual level. In this context, Masilat Yasharim says, Chapter 11, Hashem wants only faithfulness. In addition, the sin of stealing brings dire consequence. There is no punishment so severe in the entire Torah as the punishment of stealing. It's pretty... Pretty That's, powerful, yeah. right? <laughs> that says it all. Now then, let me let me say this. You mentioned the generation of the flood, right? Right, and uh, I turn over to page twenty-one in this book, and and uh, Rob Schwartz has something to say about that. He quotes he's, he's, he he quotes from Sanhedrin one hundred eight B, and then he goes on and gives a quick explanation. Rabbi Yochanan said, "Come and see how great is the power of robbery. The generation of the flood transgressed everything." But their judgment was only sealed when they began to steal. And then he contrasts this. He contrasts the generation with the flood with the generation of the dispersion, right? And he says, Our rabbis explain the reasons for the difference between the punishment that the generation of the flood received, that they perished from the earth, and that the generation of the dispersion received. Although their sin was great, they were not destroyed completely. But rather, Hashem scattered them throughout the earth. The following is Rashi's explanation. Whose sin is worse, the generation of the flood or the generation of the dispersion? These, the generation of the flood, did not oppose God. While these, the generation of the dispersion, did, attempting to wage war against Him. Yet, the generation of the flood were thieves, and there was fighting among them. So they were destroyed. Whereas these, the generation of the dispersion, lived in friendship and harmony. As is written, the whole world spoke one language and was of a united cause, which teaches that strife is despicable and peace is great. Wow. I always did like Rob Schwartz. He's, <laughs> he's always, he's just, I, I, I just respect him so much. And to hear him kind of address the same thing in the same way we're attempting to do here, really says it all. I mean, I'm feeling kind of good about good news, bad news. I'm feeling good that we're doing something on on theft that's as powerful as this. 
the bad news is is that we're having to do something is on theft, which is the bad news. I mean, I wish we didn't have any to deal with. But I think uh, with the elections that are going to be coming up, uh, we've got a long time. We've got lots of weeks that we can talk about uh, a lot of things that are going to be current and on the news all the time. And one of those examples is the major debt that we in the United States have. Uh, I mean, I don't really, I'm not familiar with what other countries are having to deal with in terms of the numbers. I know it's bad because I see it on TV, but for here, for us in this country, $15 trillion with a T, trillion. I mean, that's an unbelievable number. And we have people who are experts at how are we going to reduce this deficit? And one of the things that people are talking about is having to make cuts, of course, which I agree with. I don't necessarily agree with the cuts they're talking about doing, but obviously things have to have to be cut. One of the things that's being thrown out there uh, is Social Security. And wait, wait a second. Wait, I want to say one thing. People just realize when we have this discussion, right, we know when it comes to Social Security, some of you out there are mighty lions on this issue. <laughs> Just pretend like we're the one who are, who, are, who, who you're a lion, you're in pain, and we're pulling the thorn out of the thorn out of your paw. Okay, that's what we're trying to do here. We're not trying to, to get eaten or anything like that. No, but uh, it. I mean, Social Security is a biggie. Uh, I mean, in uh, uh, in a recent article in uh, Forbes magazine, there was. Uh, I'm just going to read a, a couple sentences that kind of helps define what Social Security is, in essence. And uh, the author says that it's not a pension fund into which you put your money when you are young and from which you draw when you are old. It's an immediate transfer from workers today to the retirees today or those who are not working today. That's what it has always been, and that's what it has to be. There is no other possible way for it to work. Now, this happens to also be the definition of a Ponzi scheme, where let's use, uh, sadly, a Bernie Madoff as the example. He kept finding new investors. He and his people kept finding new investment capital to bring into the company that they used to pay off older investors who've been with them for a while, giving the false perception that the investors were receiving dividends from their investments and also having it look good for the incoming new investors. This is called a Ponzi scheme, kind of like robbing Peter to pay Paul. And uh, he obviously got thrown in prison for the rest of whatever. I mean, the key's gone. And yet our very own government is doing the exact same thing. Now, that's not necessarily what we're talking about in terms of theft and cuts to the Social Security system. What we're kind of talking about is, you know, yes, of course, the Ponzi scheme is stealing from one side to feed the other side. But what's really going on is that the politicians have now used this uh, trust fund to basically satisfy their thirst for spending. And it doesn't really matter if you're a Republican, Democrat, Independent. It doesn't matter. You're a politician. Rampant spending is usually part of that equation. And so that's kind of what we're talking about here in terms of theft and how... 
it's it's going to well in my estimation even though this particular author said it's not going to go bankrupt i'm i'm suggesting that if this continues it can go bankrupt and this was in the um it's like the, this is a uh, contributor on on the Forbes website named John T Harvey from uh um 482011 uh titled what social why social security cannot go bankrupt title of the article Right, what you're referring to, which if you go based on his theory, he's correct. Un- unfortunately, part of his theory is is somewhat flawed, even though he does kind of address it. Uh, is, and that's the the only way that Social Security can exist is through productivity. Productivity being the younger workers filling the the trust fund with money they're earning, and then from that trust fund gets dispersed the money to the those who have, who've retired. The problem is, is what happens if you run out of the young people putting into the trust fund, which is exactly why it's illegal and called a Ponzi scheme. For the exact same reason that Bernie Madoff is in prison, this is how it it, it works. But in terms of... Explain to me exactly what a Ponzi scheme is. A Ponzi scheme is where you you have money coming in from one side. And just kind of look at it as a tunnel. You've got an opening at one end, an opening at the other end. And money flows in the one end. Now, prior to this money flowing in, first came the initial investors. And those investors put in their money. Whoops, that came right in, right into the, the open end of the tunnel. So that money is now in. So now those investors are sitting on the sideline waiting for their money to start paying off in profits. So what continues to happen is Bernie Madoff and his crew started, uh, they just continued to go out and find new investors who put in new investment funds into that front end of the tunnel. So that money kept flowing into the tunnel, and they then used the money that was going to the end and exiting the tunnel to pay off the actual first investors. Now, why were they doing this? Simply because they had nothing that they were putting the money in in terms of an investment in which to earn a profit to then pay those investors. They were just basically using the money that was coming in the front end and as it was coming out the other end of the tunnel, using that to pay the older investors. That is a Ponzi scheme. It's completely illegal. Now, if they had if they had used that money that was coming in the the uh, uh, first entrance of the tunnel, and invested that into whatever stock market, uh, just whatever gold mines, whatever, and they were making a percentage of profit, they would then take from that percentage and give the investors a percentage of that profit. This way, the investors win, and the company who's pulled this all together wins also. That's not what was happening. If that was happening, everything would have been fine. But that's not what was happening. There was no, there was nothing really being invested in, and so therefore it is a Ponzi scheme. That's what is, they call the Ponzi scheme. Right. And the way uh, Social Security works, as uh, we see, is that um, uh, money's put into it, and uh, f- people who are working. So when Social Security first started, there were people who were putting into it. And people who were receiving benefits who had never put into it before, right. correct? So you had people who were receiving benefit who had never put into it before based on those who were working at that time. And that's how it got started. That's how it got started. So you're automatically in the hole. 
But at that time, the production level of the younger workers was so good that it it came out okay. Sure. That they were able to take care of those who had fallen into that retirement pool. Right. And then so, um, and what we we have, um, that happens is if you have a, a, uh, your country is so productive, if if America is so productive, then we end up with an excess of, um, of funds. That excess of, of funds is actually called the Social Security Trust Fund. That's what. That's where that mo- that extra money goes goes to. Right. Correct. Right. So the idea is 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 with that money is that you you now have sort of a buffer if anything goes wrong if pro- productivity suddenly drops down you've got a buffer there to you know go, you know uh, uh, make sure people are still getting their their payments. Right. And when the theft comes in is when the government overspends itself and starts drawing money out of that fund to to pay for that lavish spending. Whatever the program is, doesn't matter. It's where's the money coming from. Well, some of that funding is coming out of the Social Security Trust Fund that is should otherwise be used to be taking care of the folks who have retired. Now, let me say this just sort of kind of make, put everything into its own compartment and box. I think there are, there are two ways to look at Social Security. Uh, to consider one you've given us, which is a, is a Ponzi scheme, right? We're not really investing in anything. We're just it's just money that's going in with the promise that when you hit that age, you too will receive the benefit of younger workers contributing to your retirement. Exactly. Right, and which may or may not be the case. You can't. It's not really a promise that you can guarantee. Right? Not unless you're the government. Well, but the, even the government can guarantee it because <laughs> no, not might, in reality. <laughs> because what, what happens? We, we the, just as the, as we uh, elected uh, people to to, uh, to office who voted Social Security in, we can also vote people in office to vote Social Security out. So there is you have no guarantee that it will always be there. Right. That's just sort of what they. And this is why you say that it's a Ponzi scheme. So this is one way to think about it: is that is Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. The second way to think about it is as a form of government-mandated tzedakah, government-mandated uh, charity in one sense, right? Right. Because the idea is is that um, is that you have people who are who are retiring and the younger workers are are donating some of their their money, some of their pro- productivity to support them when they hit a certain age, and you know really. That I don't see a problem with that idea in of itself from a philosophical standpoint, from a Torah standpoint. I mean, you know, just think back. What did your parents do for you? What did the older generation do for you? Uh, raised you up from from being a child, taking care of you, uh, feeding you, providing clothes for you, doing all these wonderful things that eh, maybe you think right. them, maybe you didn't think them. Right. So, so I think there is a, a real ethical. Um, uh, uh, I don't know what you call impetus to take care of the older not, generation. Not just ethical, but I would say moral also. Even moral, though, absolutely. Even though, when we talk about the seven laws, one of those, uh, one law that's important in the Ten Commandments is to honor your mother and father. Even though that isn't listed, as it were, in the seven laws, the question really becomes: Should we take care well, of them? But you, so, yeah. so the answer to that, of course, is yes. And it, so there's a moral. Uh, uh, well, from a tourist perspective, actually, the positive version of uh, of the, the prohibition against theft for Noahides is, is to, to give, give tzedakah, right? Right, to give charity. Right. I mean, that's the opposite of. So, if you don't want to steal, don't steal. 
So to to keep that in a positive sense gives tzedakah. So there's not. So I think there is a moral obligation that exists for us in regarding the the older generation. I don't think there's any question about that whatsoever. Um, the the problem is, and this is where theft comes in, is that when you make it a government mandated form of tzedakah, you have two problems. One of the problems Ray touched on, and that is, is that the way the government views Social Security is as a piggy bank for other other programs. Other programs. <laughs> so that whenever they, they start running low somewhere else, oh, look, we have all this extra cash sitting around doing nothing in Social Security. Let's borrow that, quote, unquote, and, uh, and use it for whatever our program is. That's one problem because Social Security, if we consider it as a form of tzedakah, was meant for a particular purpose. The money was designated. When you give tzedakah, if you send it to any rabbinical organization, you specify what it's going for, and that organization has no choice but to spend on that for, for that program. The second issue is, and so that 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 then is the second issue, which is, is that you have to be careful with the money that you receive for tzedakah, and the government clearly clearly is incapable of being careful with that money. Right, and so. In, in in that side of it, not being careful, uh, is what brings it forth as being theft. Mm-hmm. Because even though we don't see it, I mean, it's not like a guy walking into Seven Eleven waving a gun in the guy's face and taking fifty bucks out of the register. That theft is obvious. This theft, not so much, because it's kind of happens behind the scenes, and uh, we're not uh, in in direct line of it to to be able to see it as readily as you could something like a 7-Eleven robbery. And uh, that that actually makes it even worse because there's people doing it behind our back. And quite frankly, to have told somebody to have made an uh, basically an oath to a group of people that you pay in and when it's your time to uh, come out of the workforce, you'll be taken care of because you put money in all this time, then by gosh, you ought to, you ought to do that. And this whole idea of, well, we can always uh, raise taxes and uh, uh, reduce the benefits and or, and or increase the retirement age. Well, if you increase the retirement age, and let's say you told them that people could retire at 62, but now it's 65, and now from here it's going to go to 70, wouldn't that still be considered theft? Sure. Well, Adam, yeah. we, we have we have kind of uh, bumped up against the bottom of the hour rather rapidly here, and I think uh, uh, we're going to definitely have a lot more to talk about on, on this particular subject, only because it's so prominent in the news. But uh, Adam and I are going to sneak on out of here for this uh, first segment, and joining us for the second segment, once again, is going to be our great friend, uh, Mr. Doug Taylor, with another fabulous teaching. So, Doug, uh, we'll catch you on the other side. Folks, stick around with us. Hello, my name is Brandon Zega, and I am from the University of Central Florida. And I love Mr. Imagine Radio because of all the great broadcasts. I want to say a happy Hanukkah to UCF Hello and UCF Abad and the whole world. Hello, it's Paul Topple phoning from Melbourne. Keep well, have a happy Hanukkah, 
and thank you for the terrific station that you've transmitted to us over the internet. Arut Sheva, Israel National Radio, would like to wish you a happy Hanukkah. People from all over the world listen to Arut Sheva, Israel National Radio. Shalom, my name is Nathan Shapkas of Nederland, and I live in Jerusalem. Stem up on Arut Sheva, IsraelNationalRadio.com. You've been in Matt Israel on the internet. Hola a todos, mi nombre es Daniel Cohen, nací en Buenos Aires, Argentina y estoy viviendo aquí hace 7 meses por un programa de Masá. Me encanta escuchar a Luz Cheva, www.israelnationalradio.com por todas sus noticias y los debates. Arut Sheva, Israel National Radio, spreading the light of Israel around the world. Hello and welcome to the Noahide Nations Radio Show. My name is Doug Taylor and I'll be your host today. And today we're going to talk about Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, and chapter 10, verse 17. A very interesting verse with lots of good lessons in it for us. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 17 reads, The way of life is to teach Musser, and to leave Musser will cause you to err. The way of life is to teach Musser, and to leave Musser will cause you to err. Now, I do want to tell you that the information that I'm sharing with you is from uh, teachings that I learned uh, from my friend and mentor, Rabbi Morton Moskowitz, who has spent uh, years, even decades, uh, involved in uh, the book of Proverbs. So the first thing we want to do with a proverb is to ask ourselves, what are the questions? What kinds of things do we need to understand and define in order to make sure we know what King Solomon is trying to tell us with regard to this verse? The Me'iri says that the only test for truth is questions. So the verse again reads, The way of life is to teach Musser, and to leave Musser will cause you to err. So the first question I would ask is, what is Musser? What does that mean? We'll need to define what that is. And it says the way of life. When it says the way of life, what does that mean? I mean, we're already alive, so what's that getting at? And then when it says in the second half, to leave Musser will cause you to err or to go astray, what does that mean? Now, Rabbi Moskowitz defines Musser as the science of the consequences of your actions. It's understanding the consequences of your actions. And so it's like an early detection system. Musser teaches you how to make correct decisions in life and how to look at life correctly. It's a, it's a framework in the way you think, and it works uh, for you only when the learning actually affects your life. Otherwise, uh, it's just like carrying a bunch of books around on your back. They're not really doing you any good. The learning, uh, the Musser teaching, has to affect the way that you operate. Now, there are two parts to Musser. The first is the science of the consequences of your actions and the science of life that actually helps you. In other words, it's the science itself. The second part is the application of that science. It's when you apply it to your own life. So, for example, suppose you study physics. So there's the science of physics. Then if you build, say, a car, 
That's the application of physics. So Musser is the study of the science of life and the application of it, and you need to have both parts. The way of life, that is the best life that a person can have, is to learn the science of life and guard it and keep it. That person makes it a part of himself. That is the way of life spoken of in the first part of the proverb. But if someone leaves Musser, then he or she is going to have a life of failure. So the verse that we're looking at here is a very general and universal verse. Uh, and, and in one respect, all the other parts of Proverbs are details of this verse. Many times in Mishle, in Proverbs, there will be a verse that's universal, and sometimes there'll be a verse that's uh, more detailed rather than being universal. Now, a human being has free will to be guided by his intellect or his emotions. It's not that you get rid of one or the other, but it's a question of which one makes the decisions in your life. And by emotions, uh, we're talking about things like jealousy and greed and envy, uh, things that sometimes people make decisions on. Rational analysis will show you that these emotions are irrational and will lead to some type of destruction. Musser, by contrast, will show you the best possible life and the incorrectness of the other type of life. Now, Musser and Halacha, that is Torah law, are two different sciences, like mathematics and physics. They have some meeting points, but they're not the same. Okay, Torah law is Torah law. Musser is ethical philosophy, very particular area. Now, in the second half of the verse, when it says to leave Musser will cause you to err, the, the phrase to err means that you'll suffer the consequences of your actions. For example, most people know that if you're fair-skinned and you go out with no sun protection on the first day of summer, you'll pay the consequences. You'll get sunburned, and maybe you'll get sunburned badly. But people look at emotions like envy and jealousy and greed, and they think they're bad, but they don't see that they lead to consequences and to harm. Very practical things. If you don't have the knowledge of Musser, then many times you'll pay the consequences for these things, and you may not even see that you're the cause. And then you start blaming things around you because you're not seeing that you're the one causing it. So you could be doing actions now that in five or ten years are going to affect you in a negative way. Each of us has trained himself to make decisions in a certain way. Given the right situation, uh, that reactive way could be very harmful. So, for example, suppose you train yourself to react to situations by getting angry. Okay, so you have fights with your spouse and the neighbors here and there. But what if you just then angrily react to your boss? You could lose your job. You could even go to jail if your reaction is strong enough. So it's very important how we train ourselves to respond in different situations in life. Now, what does it mean to guard Musser? It means that you have to watch yourself constantly because your emotions can creep out at times when you don't expect them to. 
So you always have to be on your guard around this. You need to be aware that there is a part of you that does this, this emotional aspect of you. And you need to pick up on the ways that you operate that you may not normally even notice. For most of us, this is a lifetime process of undoing these emotions, even while you're studying other subjects in Torah. Because these emotions are always at work. And this is what we mean by the evil inclination. It's the part of us that we don't recognize. Now, let's digress on evil for just a moment. Sajigyan, one of the great sages, holds that evil is ignorance. For example, no one says, I'm going to buy a bigger house than so-and-so because I'm jealous of their house. They'll come up with all kinds of rationales for buying the house, but everyone else knows they're buying it because of jealousy. But they're ignorant of their real reason for doing it. In our society, evil often has a very strong connotation, as in, wow, that person's doing something that's really evil. You know, it reminds you of villains in horror movies uh, and, and that kind of thing. It has this very horrible, gruesome connotation. As far as ethics is concerned, and that's what we're talking about right now, evil is about destroying your way of looking at life, and you'll get the consequences of your actions. So that's what we mean by evil in the sense of ethics. It's not a mystical thing. It's a very practical thing. So if you do something wrong, you shouldn't condemn yourself like you're terrible. The guilt feeling should only prompt you to do an investigation to determine whether or not you did the right thing. That is the real purpose of guilt. It is to prompt you to do an investigation to determine whether or not you did the right thing. Just the fact that you have guilt is not a determiner of whether you did the right thing. People have all kinds of misplaced guilt. There are people that feel guilty if they don't wash their car once a week, but there's nothing written in the cosmos that says they have to do that. Guilt feelings in and of themselves are of no benefit. They're only of benefit if they motivate you to get involved in the world of thought. So if you feel guilty about something, you shouldn't stay in that state. You should move to analysis. What did I do? Was it correct or incorrect? Should I have done something different in that particular situation? We have to define these things clearly to the mind so the mind can see it and then you can move forward. Otherwise, we just get stuck in our feelings. It's this recognition that is the cure of the evil inclination in allowing it to make decisions for us. All of these things take constant review of these ideas and the verses so that you naturally start thinking this way. And then you can guard the emotions because you have the ideas and the ideas become a part of you. This is why we review some of the same ideas uh, in Mishlei from different angles over and over and over in different cases and see them from this angle and that angle because we want them to become a part of us so that we stop, start operating in accordance with those. And because we have the emotions operating within us, we have to be constantly on guard to sh be sure that we're aware of them and how they may be influencing us. So, the verse says that the path of life is to keep Musr. The way of life is to, to keep Musr. So, 
What does it mean then to leave Musr, which is mentioned in the second half? It means that even if you study it, but you don't guard it, you'll make mistakes. So the subject of the verse is how a person should relate to Musr. You can either guard the study, and it's constantly being used in your thinking, or you're studying and not guarding it, in which case it's going to be lost, and you won't benefit from it, and you'll make mistakes. If you don't have the study, then you can't get the benefit either way. So it's not like the science of mathematics or physics where you just have the information. You have to constantly guard Musser so that you're using the ideas in your thinking and thereby protecting yourself from consequences. Now, Ibn Ezra learns the verse somewhat differently. He reads the verse like this. The way of life, comma, to have a good way of life, you need two things. You have to guard Musr, comma, and you have to leave the false, or the Musr that is in error. The first way we look at the verse is that if you want to have a good life, you have to keep Musr. If you don't keep Musr, you'll err. But Ibn Ezra says that if you want a good life, you have to keep Musr, and you also have to leave the Musr that is in error. So there are two pieces here. Now, that seems easy enough, but we're surrounded by people who want to tell us about how to live life. Parents, teachers, various leaders, supposed experts, and so forth. And if you're not careful, you'll pick up on some of those ideas without even realizing it. It's like the idea that, oh, you'll get a cold if you go outside without a coat on. You know, people make universal statements about life and other people accept them. Uh, over a cup of coffee, you sometimes have the greatest psychologists and philosophers talking to you. You know, your friends and your neighbors, they've got the answer. And if you pick up ideas from them about life, then you may be picking up false ideas about life. So you have to pick up the positive life ideas from Torah, but you also need to be able to recognize and shed the false ideas that you pick up from others including parents and teachers and friends and so forth. You have to be very careful to be aware enough not to accept a false view of life. So you need to be able to understand a correct idea and also be able to identify an idea that is false. The book of Proverbs is set up this way. It shows us the correct view of life and the incorrect view of life. And then we discuss the case so that we see the difference between the two. If you recall from your study of uh, the book of Proverbs, if you've been in that book, a lot of the verses are contrast uh, between uh, good and evil or the wise and the foolish uh, and so forth. We get this contrast and then we look at the particular case in the verse and try to figure out uh, what's happening. In mathematics, all I need to know is the correct idea. I don't need to know 20 incorrect proofs, but in Musser, I need to know the incorrect views because I may have one of those and not even know it or recognize it. And by learning the incorrect views, it helps protect me from those so that I can recognize them and choose the correct approach instead. Now, how do we protect ourselves against a false view? And 
Can we live according to that life without any errors? Is that possible? The answer is yes, it's possible, but not for everybody. Maybe it's possible for a rare few people. Not everyone has the ability to change their life to that extent, but most people have the ability to change their life somewhat. So, how do I go about doing that? And how do I know how much I can change? I submit to you that the only way a person changes is based on ideas. As you go over these ideas of Proverbs and you review them, there's a certain development that happens when you start thinking and operating differently. You start seeing things differently, and you start having a different view of life. A lot of the pain that we experience in life is from our own viewpoint. And by changing that viewpoint, we can reduce the mental discomfort that we inflict upon ourselves. So it's academic whether you can change or not. Your only job is to study the ideas and review the ideas, have discussions uh, you know, with uh, your rabbinic teachers or with others, and then the ideas begin to affect your view of life. And once the idea is clear to your mind, then it does affect your life and how you make your decisions. It's been suggested that a way to become a general okay, in, in the military is you read all of the battles and the plans that were made for those in history, all the various battles that took place here and there and that war, that thing, and why they went right and why they went wrong. And you analyze them. You don't do that for the purpose of memorizing them. But you want to do it because the nature of strategy and war then becomes second nature to you. You, you're working through enough of these analyses that the process of analysis starts to become part of you. And when it becomes second nature, then you think that way. Then, when you're planning a battle, all that knowledge is second nature to you. So you know how to analyze the situation and think about it. It's a training of thinking in a certain way. So if you want to learn a certain area, you read the great people in that area. And if they made mistakes, then you analyze those mistakes. So you'll naturally think this way when you get into that kind of a situation. Notice that the Torah does not try to make people into flawless heroes. The Torah is very open about mistakes that people, including the patriarchs, made. That information is right there. It's available for us to learn from. Now, there is a view that people can hold of a perfect life. The only problem with that is that the view of the perfect life has nothing to do with reality. We see this in, in lots of places. There are certain religious approaches where it's deemed to be a virtue to abstain forever from sexual relations or to the fantasy mom who can run a public corporation, serve on six boards, lead the PTA, campaign against world hunger, and be a perfect wife, all while giving birth to unexpected triplets. And look, she's still smiling and cheery all the time. Does that really happen? I mean, where do we get those ideas? See, there's this view of perfection that's clearly not in line with reality. And if I accept that, then my life is going to be very difficult because I'm making demands on myself that are against the very nature that I was created with. And in that case, I may demand too much of myself, or in other cases, I might demand too little of myself. 
I have to understand the nature of man and myself, what I'm capable of doing and what is realistic for me to expect of myself. You shouldn't even try for something that is not in reality. But what if we show that a certain thing's possible, but you're not there yet? What about that? Well, in that case, we'll show methods of how you can get there, but there's no guarantee you'll get there. See, I suggest that Torah is not asking us to be perfect. It's asking us to study the reality, and then we have to apply it and see how far we can go. And that's up to each of us and each of our own abilities. Certain people have the ability to reach a certain level. Other people uh, are able to reroute maybe only a certain amount of their emotions. Closely connected to that, let's talk about the related subject of sin. Sin is used in two ways. Insofar as halacha or Torah law is concerned, you either did the act correctly or you didn't. Okay, it's pretty much a black and white thing. And in order to do the act correctly or avoid something that's prohibited, you have to know the law. So that's why it's important to keep halacha, uh, Torah law. You don't get partial credit here. You either keep the law or you don't. Uh, for example, uh, for a Jewish person, if the Yom Kippur fast is 25 hours and the person fasts for 24 hours and then ate something, they didn't halakhically fulfill the commandment, period. Okay, It's a yes or no kind of thing. But as far as philosophy is concerned, things outside of strict halacha, it's different. Someone once said that a righteous person is one who desires what the evil person actually does. He dreams about what the evil person does. So according to that idea, a righteous person does the right act, but he may still have the old emotion that's drawing him to the wrong act. Now, you can undo the old emotion, but only through knowledge. Insofar as the action goes, you're obligated to do the correct action, and the only way you can undo that emotion is through knowledge. It's true that he has to force himself to do the right physical action or restrain himself from the prohibited action, but you cannot force a philosophical view on yourself. That has to come by the mind clearly seeing a true idea, and that comes by continual review of the correct ideas, similar to the example we gave about becoming a great general. So if you go through this review and you see these ideas correctly, you can slowly move away from the emotions and your mind can begin to take precedence over the emotions and see the truth clearly. So let's take jealousy. Suppose you feel jealous. Well, there are one of two ways of undoing it. Either you buy a fancier car or a bigger house than the other person, or you destroy the other person's car or house. That's what an evil person would do. They would take actions like that. But a person who feels the emotion but acts correctly is still a righteous person as long as he doesn't carry out the dictates of his jealousy. So a righteous person can still have the emotions. If you act on them, that's where a person becomes evil. But if you don't act on them, then you're not. And that's it for this segment of the Noahide Nations radio show. Thanks so much for joining, and I hope you can join us next time. In the meantime, make this a great day.
This is Jenny. I'm here at Israel National Radio. I'm so happy and、uh, God bless Israel. 大家好，我是廖文玲，现在是在 Israel Radio Station 这里。I really、uh, encourage everyone to come back to the Israel, and this is a holy land. This is Israel National Radio. I'm happy. God bless this place, protect this place, and be wisdom always. You're listening to IsraelNationalRadio.com. 